From Nevada Public Radio, I'm Joe Shaneman, a state of Nevada. For at least a year now, Las Vegas locals have been watching and wondering about the possible construction of a baseball stadium on the Strip. The price tag, $1.5 billion, is huge. But Nevada taxpayers are going to help the billionaire team owner with $380 million. So there has been some understandable grumbling. It's also been nearly a year since the developer claimed he was going to build a $10 billion complex on the south end of the Strip without public money. When that actually happens, no one's quite sure. But at the same time, plans and ideas for redevelopment off the Strip are taking shape. That includes an electric village downtown, but also plans for a public-private mental health campus on Charleston Boulevard. And to start this conversation, Wina Jong is the founder and the CEO of Z-Life. Two years ago, she built the English Hotel downtown and its Pepper Club on Main Street. Uh, Wina, welcome to the program. Thank you to having me, Joe. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Your project is called Midtown, and your plans for it are massive. Just to give people a general idea, when it's completed, how big will this be? Uh, combined will be 1.6 billion, uh, 3,000 units. Uh, the completion date will be uh, five years from this year. On top of uh, I've been spent the last five years revitalize that area already, which has been combined 10 years. Okay. And uh, how much money are you going to get from the state for this? Uh, zero. Zero. Oh, so you're doing 100% private money. Okay. Now, I've heard the term, and you've used this, electrified village in relation to this. What does that mean? Um, so let's just I'll give a very uh, quick background about myself. I spent the last 20 years in high-rise construction. So last time I was on your show, NPR, that was 2007, I was contracted to build luxury hotel Fontainebleau. Mm -hmm. Took Jeff saw for 20 years. At the same time, I built pr pretty much all downtown. So uh, I came up the system, like luxury glass house, affordable for working class. So that's in order to make affordable uh, for working class, you have to make this high quality glass concrete steel condo or apartment as product. Uh, product. So in order to get the price down, ever since vertical, uh, we decide instead complicated with gas, gasoline, we go 100% electrical. Oh, I see. So also electrical is the future. So that's why I call 100% electri electrical city. Also to create people where they can work, where they can live without a car, like 15 minutes walking city. Yeah, so 3,000 units. How many blocks will that be in? Uh, so far, I own uh, plus minus three city blocks around the four acres. And uh, you aren't going to be required to build these. You know, the city has pretty strict codes about building parking in relation to the size of a potential business. Why uh, you're not going to have to have build these huge parking garages? How come? What? what how? How did you manage this? So. The reason I, I spent five years in San Francisco, two years in New York, the reason I moved back to Vegas to put proof, proof of concept of my 100% electricity, because I know Vegas 
are very pro-business. Mm-hmm. I've got great support from City of Las Vegas uh, by help process. I can get a permit very fast. So they are waived majority of parking for my development because um, the future of self-driving is not that far. It's just like the commercial uh, office we have trouble today. Imagine if in order to build 3,000 units residence, then you have to build uh, hundreds, hundreds uh, parking garage. It will cost me hundreds of millions. And five, 10 years later, you order your car from your phone. It can be show up 30 minutes from five miles, a cheap parking garage. What I do with this hundreds million investment, tear it down. So also that will stop the project uh, pencil out. When you talk about the electric car, you mean you're going to have electric cars, uh, a Teslas or whatever they're going to be, available to the people who live there? Well, what, what we're doing is instead uh, build parking garage will give you a car. So our Tesla program, like two-bedroom, two-bath uh, uh, apartment, we have a seven hours per week for free, and it can accumulate up to six months. One bedroom, one bath. We have five hours per week for free. Studio has uh, three hours per week for free. Then we have a daily rent, uh, week rent, month rent, all below the market price for our residents. Right now, I have one Tesla EV uh, rental in my parking garage at English Hotel. So we're charging like $190 a day. But if your residence, uh, could be up to, uh, down to like $65 a day. Okay. Now, you don't like to call this affordable housing. Instead, you say it's more affordable than potentially other new condos and apartments that are going up downtown. And you say it's because of the way you build. It's similar to the construction of the English Hotel. What is so different about your process where you've been able to save, I think you've said, 40% over traditional construction costs? How? What are you doing differently? Are these prefabbed rooms? What is it? So uh, one thing important to be said, prefab, pre-engineer, pre-assembling our steel structure and the glass. Remember uh, the glass contractor background. The most important is vertical. A lot of prefab or uh, construction company, they really don't understand what supply chain. So that's where the last 20 years I was on the front line uh, on supply chain manufacturer and I was a union contractor for all those years. Uh, so what I learned from all this experience to come up this system, pretty much like you're rolling out assembling line to build mid-rise. We don't do high-rise, mid-rise and low-rise. Okay, so it's kind of a, and you call it the matrix system? Yes, the matrix system. We're going to change the name. It's not really a matrix. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, and who then will these units ultimately be built for? I mean, how much money is somebody going to have to earn to be able to live in these uh, concrete, glass, you know, what I would think is pretty nice condos and apartments? It's very simple. So our studio started as $360,000. The bartender who work around, they can afford. 
And even our penthouse, our studio penthouse, started with 880,000. So what I did was I reverse engineer to take a data of, right now we're shorted for 4,000 houses in downtown. And then I take the data as one bedroom, two bedroom, the studio rental, what is that net? How can I make that affordable for working class there, working in two, three blocks away? So the reverse engineer, uh, so actually uh, the number, of, of course, I, I have to tell you how many, uh, what's the critical problem I sure. solved to get that reverse engineer, mm -hmm. engineer number. First problem, of course, uh, bring the luxury product to uh, uh, affordable. N nothing I'm, I'm selling except penthouses, more than 800,000 units, literally from 350 to 800. Uh, you got a the price. Then you face another problem is HOA. All those condos are 50 cents to start with, right? Up to 50 $2. cents a, a square a foot? A square foot, a square foot, up to $2 a square foot. So first reduced. HOA. Our HOA is like 25 cents. How, how, how could I achieve that? Uh, what I did was I commercialized. It's a, it's, it's a mixed use. The first two floors are commercial, office and retail. So I'm generating profit from the, my midtown plaza to substat the HOA. So you don't have to spend like maximum security, like all the other tower. My security, Midtown, will cover all the residents, right? And then I reduced the HOA to 25 cents a square foot. And then the other problem is, of course, the car, right? People still need a car. Then you got uh, the uh, Tesla share. If, if, if a couple give up one car, that's five dollars $800. Uh, uh, saving, so mm -hmm. we can cover to build your equity. This is equity. So the so the other is the interest. So after you solve solve all this problem, that's the biggest problem. Fed, right? That stop the buyer, stop literally the younger generation target get into real estate market early, build up equity before they get married, before they move out to the city. So the other problem that I solved almost there is buy down uh, mortgage. So that's you, you, how they make, make uh, them affordable, yes. Uh, you buy down a mortgage, what does that mean? Um, which is, let's say the mortgage today is six or seven. Percent. So, uh, percent. Developer have to buy down that number. That will reduce my profit. That's mm -hmm. why there's two ways you can buy down mortgage. One, you increase your sales price. Then that will kill my idea to make uh, to help young people get into real estate, build equity earlier, which mm -hmm. is mean you have the increased price. So how do I get there is I have to absorb the cost to, which is uh, uh, reduce my profit. But I'm willing to do that uh, in order to make uh, affordable, attend attendable. Yeah, you you have said you want to create a new middle class. What, what are you talking about? Oh, I, I have been doing that. So... In the last couple of years, everyone talked about AI. I was just, I was sitting, I'm like, AI is not going to hurt my taking my job because I'm in construction, real estate development, and the hospitality. English people, Pepper Club, we have like 100 people work, are, are work for us, right? 
So what I did for the Pepper Club, they are employee on revenue share, mm-hmm. right? So everyone from dishwasher to the sous chef to the manager. So the standard uh, uh, middle class in hospitality is 65000 a year. Mm-hmm. With revenue share, remember, not profit share, it's a revenue share. Sometimes when, the, when, the, when it goes bad mo- month, mm-hmm. I have to write a check. Right, this person. Even though you didn't make the profit to, to cover that. Correct. It's, it's a revenue share. So I'm creating new middle class, new middle class, which is additional uh, revenue share that could be ten, twenty thousand uh, a year. So the new middle class, it's. I think they are the future because I keep telling people. You know, we try to get rich people move to downtown, right? The tech people, tech company. Yes, they're rich. They make half a million dollars a year. They can live in Miami or Dubai, so they don't have to be saddled in desert. In order to build community, we need locals, the hospitality workers, work for the city, work for Zappos, work for medical district. They will be live here. So there's uh, two goals I'm making. One, make affordable life, nice condo affordable for the working class here. The other goal is create a new middle class so they can live where they work. You know, you've described yourself as a capitalist, but some of the ideas, you know, really as a strong capitalist, but some of these ideas sound very like socialism. Why do you care as long as you make your money? So I grew up very, very poor in the Mongolia, like literally middle of nowhere in between China and Mongolia. So before I was eight years old, uh, it, it was like no water, no electricity. So my first 17 years in Mongolia, I was forced to be a vegan. Because we You're couldn't forced, aff- forced vegan? Yeah, because we couldn't afford meat, even we're in Mongolia. So... <laughs> Uh, so, yes, I learned in a hard way, socialist, communist doesn't work. You got to be a capitalist first. I was self-made millionaire when I was 20 years old. I changed my family's life. I moved the whole my family, uh, my whole family, including grandfather, from poverty to Shenzhen. They live in, like, the condo was million later. So that... What I learned is you have to be a capitalist first, then you can help others. Okay. By the way, people will be interested in to hear this. That somebody who grew up with no electricity, no water, you could eat meat maybe once a year during the, the lunar uh, holiday. Right. How did you get a million dollars by the time you were 20? <laughs> so in my... Uh, at the time, when I grew up in Mongolia, it was still like a caste system like India. If you grow up a village, you cannot say, oh, I go to New York and get a job. I go to Beijing and get a job. No. The only way you can get out of Mongolia was you, you get into college. It was very difficult, but I did it. So after getting to college, my family on debt, uh, my father had to borrow money. Uh, imagine Chinese nature, you, you want to you shame when you're on debt, right? Yeah. So I had to make money, and then I became uh, I, I became a tourist guide. Mm-hmm. So what I see is I, I was making money so fast. It was like, wow, why would I finish my college? Like, this is what I should do. 
So then I also getting into the tourism industry. At that time, the Chinese, there, there's a, a, you're still living on food step, you know, close step. You know, there's, the money is not useless. It's not really uh, liquid as today, right? So what I did was all those store we take in tourists, we usually get a 20% uh, commission. Uh, like, on, on products that the store would supply you with to sell to tourists? Correct, correct. Okay. So, I mean, they still happen nowadays. You go through the world country, right? So what I did was I figured out those those art or antique, antiques are like, it was nothing. It's very tourism. So then I tell all my tourist guides, all their, all their like 20s, like my age, I said, guys, if I start a store, I would give you 80%. I take 20%. So starting store wasn't difficult, right? It was easy, okay. Yeah. So in, in a year, I became a millionaire. There's a long bus waiting. I took one day off Chinese New Year. So what happened was after two, two years, three years, all the tourist guides, they're in their 20s. They all come to me. They said, Sister John, thank you so much. Because of you, I'm able to buy condo. I brought all my family, they all from like Northern China to Shenzhen, thank you. So what I learned that the winner is go to a lot of people like you, uh, I mean like me, young, came from poverty. The loser is my competitors, so I, I kill all my competitors. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you also knew Tony Shea, whose, whose parents were from Taiwan. More than 10 years ago, he moved Zappos. Dot downtown. Then he began buying properties. He pushed redevelopment of East Fremont. Lower East Fremont is now booming, though it's more for tourists than locals. Are you, uh, I guess, Tony 2.0? Or, or what did you learn from Tony Shea that you should or maybe shouldn't do? Uh, first of all, Tony was good friend. He was cooking. I don't even remember how many Thanksgiving dinner for us. Uh what I learned from him is uh, he loves to have friends around him. He's a very generous person. Um, I'm a, really a businesswoman. I'm a real estate developer. And uh, um, what I love, I will maintain uh, the tradition of Tony was still create a community that to help all the lift up, the lift up people, mm -hmm. right? Create community for small business, for working class here. So other than that, I don't want to call myself 2.0, Tony Shea, <laughs> and uh, I'm a capitalist. Yeah, yeah, I need to make a profit for my investors so I can help others with capital. You know, you're a Vegas local. You have lived really in this area for 20 years, although you've also lived in New York during that time, and now you're in downtown. I, I wonder how you think the experience of people who will live in Midtown will be different than the places you've lived, like in San Francisco or in New York. You know, there, there are some, some negatives that you would see in those places that you don't want to recreate here. Correct. So in San Francisco... Uh, there's the millionaires, multi-millionaires living in Eslet Tower, right? We all know San Francisco. You walk out, you step on 
human poops. Sorry, NPR listeners, but that's the truth, right? Yeah. So people move out. When I moved back to Vegas five years ago, the midtown was literally it's it's the same. So what I did, if you went, if you go to an English hotel, Pepper Club today, like Saturday, we host like. 400 people for brunch, 100 people for dinner. Our hotel sold out. There's like 100 people. You literally have 500 people in and out of my neighborhood, right? You don't see I put fence, gate, lock down my people. People have a freedom because my security literally cover around the four acres, three city blocks, right? So that's how I want to create a midtown. Will be thousands of residents. They're living in few city blocks. Uh, there, there's no fence. I don't put the people in the, in, in the fence, but they feel freedom to walk in around uh, the whole midtown. Uh, I mean, the good example is First Friday. What do we do the first, first Friday? We have, they've been using my lot for the last how many years? Corey, and her team did a great job. We host 30 to 50, up to 60,000 per event. Everyone feels safe. This is great, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not that we cannot do it. Do it. We can do it. So I'm going to continue to make Midtown not like uh, people feel like they have to lock down themselves in a high rise. Okay. And you said security then is going to be a big part of, of what you do. Correct. In this area. Correct. What What does that mean? How, how do you do? How do you manage security? We have about a minute before our break, but how do you right. manage security with uh, around the English Hotel? So when I build the hotel, people always said, "Oh, you need to build a fence on your parking garage." I said, "No. Once you build a fence, you you're in a bad neighborhood already. I'm revitalize the whole area. I don't want people walking in my hotel like they're they're insecure." Instead, I put a budget on security, almost like 300 or 1,000 rooms, hotel, even I only have 74 rooms, mm -hmm. boutique. Uh, this is the only Marriott tribute four-star boutique hotel in Las Vegas. Okay. So we're doing great. Wina Zhang is doing uh, a huge, by the way, when do you think you're gonna break ground on this? Uh, the break ground on the next phase uh, end of this year, we are going to have an open house on March 15th for our condos. Okay. It's State of Nevada, and we're talking about redevelopment today, but not just in the private sector. Mental health services in Clark County, if you read the news, you know they're pretty scant. So much so that last year the state Supreme Court began fining local courts because mental health assessments weren't being done fast enough. And then state lawmakers last year promised $100 million to be matched by $100 million from the casino industry to improve services for the homeless and, of course, limit their numbers on the Strip. So plans are now underway to modernize and improve the 90-acre Ross and Neal Psychiatric Complex near CSN campuses on Charleston. And this is going to involve tearing down buildings and a restructuring and a huge increase in the campus's capacity Lobbyist and former Republican State Senator Warren Hardy is part of the team that is putting this together. Warren, welcome back. Thanks, Joe. 
So talk about the primary objective of of establishing this mental health campus improvement. Well, you know, as long as I've been involved in politics in Nevada, public life in Nevada back to 1991, we, we just have not done a good job in, in mental health. I mean, I, I it's sort of been in my career where the stigma of mental health has started to break down. Um, and so I think there's a general recognition now by legislators, by the governor, by our elected officials that something significant has to happen here and we can't do it in an a hodgepodge way. We need to have a collective solution that we all work together on to try to resolve. People have described the campus, the Ross and Neal campus here. Uh, you know, it, it does have a hospital that's fairly new. Uh, within 20 years, I think it was, it's been built. But some of the other government services there have been described to me as just what you said, as sort of a hodgepodge, things put together. Is this going to be more focused? Is, is it going to be more uh, uh, cohesive. So I probably should step back a little bit and 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 give you a little outline of my involvement yeah. and my my clients' involvement. So I, I represent a group called the Nevada Health and Bioscience Corporation (NHBC). We uh, built the medical school uh, at UNLV, the Kirk Corian School of Medicine. So it's no secret that the folks that are involved in that are. Uh, the the Lindsay Foundation, the Kerkorians, the uh, Ingolstads, and others that that came together, the Boyds, the Cashmans, that came together and really built that medical school for free, mm-hmm. and we did it through the idea of a government support organization that uh, we we referred to as Development Corporation. So the Nevada Health and Bioscience Corporation is really a corporation that's created through the IRS rules that allows. Um, uh, that allows groups like mine to have more hands-on in, in terms of building and creating the direction. The, the nature of philanthropy has changed dramatically in just recent years. I mean, it used to be that the, the folks, the individuals that made the, the millions or billions would just turn the money over to an institute and say, here, do good things with this money. This new generation, the second and third generation uh, that is now running these foundations, it doesn't want to be that hands off. They want to have more input into what is being built, how it's being built, and and making and following through and making sure that the services are worthy of their of their loved ones' names. And so that's really the new the new world we're living in. And we we've had a little bit of a hard time getting everybody in Southern Nevada to understand that new model. But it's coming together. So we had the Nevada uh, Nevada uh, Bioscience Corporation that built the medical school. We're now building. We were asked by Governor Sisolak to build the pathology lab on that campus, as well as another set of office buildings where where. Uh, faculty members can practice. Uh, we're in the process of doing that. We just last week reached an agreement with. Uh, uh, UNLV that allow us to move forward. So we're a support organization in that case. We're a support organization of UNLV. So what we do there has to be in concert and benefit the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. The new mental, we're now in the process of looking at creating a new development corporation called the Nevada Mental Health and Bioscience Corporation. And we're still in the very early discussions about what our involvement's going to be, but we're in contact with the state, with the governor's office, with DHHS, with the county, with the city of Las Vegas to decide uh, what our involvement's going to look like. We're, we're not here to take things over. We, we build these buildings. 
um, and we build them the way they want them to be built. And so the focus so far on that campus is going to be, um, I call it triage. I think that the, 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 the official term is uh, crisis stabilization. Um, and that's part of what the forensic hospital will be that the state has, has announced. Um, what our involvement will be, whether it's the full um, uh, developer of the campus, the administrator of the campus, we're still in those conversations. I will tell you this, for our folks to be involved, there has to be a focus on, on mental health. Uh, so I don't know how that will overlay with the, the project you referenced with the $100 million from the state and $100 mm -hmm. million from gaming. Although we are willing to have conversations where homelessness and mental health uh, intersect, but our folks are primarily interested in mental health uh, for women. By, and by children. folks, you mean uh, potential donors? Our, uh, yeah, our our corporation. Okay, so you're, when I when you say your corporation, I, I'm thinking of you as sort of a conduit between the the donors and the the, the state and and those people that will construct this campus. Yeah, that's part of my job is to work out those deals and to make sure that that everybody's needs are, are taken care of. And the focus of this, again, crisis stabilization is an important part. That's part of the order that the Supreme Court made when they were talking about uh, there were a lot of people who were being considered for charges or in the court system who weren't being assessed fast enough. I mean, we're talking years. So there is, a, I think it's a $500 a day fine against the district court system here. But th this campus would also focus a lot on women and children? Well, our, our, our focus, the focus of our board is women and children, but also mental health. I mean, look, if you look at what's, what we've been able to do at the UNLV, Kirkcorian School of Medicine at UNLV with the uh, psychology and the other things in, uh, that are, that are psych, psych, psychiatric care and the other things that are coming forward, that is, an, that is an indication of their emphasis on this. So they're really to looking at their efforts going forward to solve the, the mental health crisis in Southern Nevada. Obviously, as we looked at, at everything that needed to be done, it was very apparent that the first thing we needed to do was keep doctors in Southern Nevada. The way to do that is to have a medical school. So that was our first emphasis, and that's, that's why the, the, our donors and our board wanted to build the medical school first. Now mm -hmm. we can begin to make incremental steps, and I, I think it's fair to say my, my group's focus will be heavily on mental health and specifically women and children. How much do you think this is going to increase the capacity? I mean, there is a campus over there right now. There's the hospital. There are apartments and there are different buildings. I mean, what's going to be – I know you don't have you – know, this isn't all drawn out somewhere yet. There's no renderings. But how do you think – what are the ideas of increasing capacity? Well, we do have a master plan that's been developed and created that we're working off with. But we're in conversation because if 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 we decide to go forward with this project – the supported organization for this new development corporation will be state uh, DHHS, the Health and Human Services. And, and we're just in the midst of those conversations. Um, so it, it, I think the net of benefit and why it will be different this time is it will be a coordinated effort because the state, the city, the county are all involved in these discussions. And, and, and everybody's done a great job, frankly. It, I know it doesn't seem like it, but everybody's done a really good job uh, with the resources they have. So bringing those resources together with one master developer um, to uh, – to coordinate efforts so the left hand knows what the right hand's doing and everything feeds into everything else is going to be is, is really what we're missing. Um, and, and hopefully we can solve that. 
through this uh, process. I thought state law only allowed uh, public-private partnerships in relation to transportation projects. I'm glad you, I'm glad you brought that up, Joe. So yeah, we. I think it was sort of, uh, I think people kind of looked the other way or they didn't necessarily understand the law, but we had a... Um, we had an you mean looked the other way when these partnerships were doing partnership. something that weren't involving with transportation. Yeah, that were oh, positive oh. and good for the yeah. state. Uh, but we did an uh, we had an audit done of the uh, system of higher education after twenty twenty one and the twenty twenty one session. And one of the things they focused on was on was the campus or excuse me the medical school, and they came back and and they did it very uh, you know diplomatically. They said uh, we're not sure. And this is a legislative audit. We're not sure that. NCHI or UNLV had the authority to enter into a public-private partnership with the Nevada Health and Bioscience Corporation, uh, and and they they weren't. They did they, the law wasn't the there. law wasn't, wasn't there. set up for that. The law wasn't there. So the legislature in the last session, we brought legislation forward. Uh, Senator Canizaro had a piece of legislation that we were able to make some adjustments to. She's been exceptionally supportive of, of this concept and has worked really hard to make sure this happened. In addition to that, we we made some adjustments to the state law relative to construction so that organizations such as such as ours can move forward, still still pay prevailing wage, still have apprenticeships, still have all the things that benefit the Nevada workers, but we don't have to go through state public works and some of the other barriers. And so uh, the medical school, for example, was uh, finished uh, six or eight months ahead of schedule and $30 million under budget. And so this development corporation concept works. When do you think there's a potential to break ground on any of this? Well, I think it'll be pretty soon. We're, um, again, we're still not we still have not completely committed to to take this on as our next um, uh, project, but that that's just contingent on other discussions that we're currently having with the governor's chief of staff and others uh, to make sure that, that what we do fits our mission. For us, w- we've got a lot of opportunities out there, but we're not going to get involved in projects that don't fit our mission. And so we're just clearing that runway right now to make sure everything that we do or agree to do has a mission of mental health generally and for women and children specifically. So if uh, that project that was uh, approved, well, actually the $100 million that was approved during the legislative session to go to homeless services, again, that would be matched by the casino industry, if that is found to match your mission, does that mean and this is something the city would not want to have happen, does that mean all of those services for the homeless would be put in this one campus? Because the the city of Las Vegas and others are saying, have said over the last several months, they'd like to see satellites of services for the homeless instead of just one area like they are in downtown Las Vegas right now. Yeah, that's that's a that's a fluid situation because there has been some have been some conversations about uh, that part of that 80 or 90 acres being a campus, part of that campus. Um, and to the extent that, that homelessness and, and, and mental health overlap, which is a significant overlap, mm-hmm. yeah, we're, we're, we're open to those conversations and open those discussions. Uh, but I think there is some, some uh, 
opposition to having it on one campus. Unfortunately, I believe the legislation says that it all has to the, the two hundred million has to be spent on one in one area. So we may need to go back and make adjustments to that um, as as this develops. So this is a relatively new concept and idea that we've been brought in about a year ago to start looking at what our involvement would be. So so there, there needs to be a, a separation, a bifurcation of, of the mental health and the homelessness. And it may make more sense to uh, have satellite campuses that feed the, mental, the mentally ill to this campus. It's interesting that you're a part of this. I mean, you're a lobbyist, but you're, you're going to be part of this development corporation. You were part of the, the one for the hospital that was built. And you're, you'll have the philanthropists, these uh, mega groups that have been known as uh, for philanthropy for, for decades in Southern Nevada. What, what's the, I guess, I really, I, I guess this is a personal question for you. And I always ask this on the program. Why do you care about this? Well, I care about it because as my, in my, times, uh, my time in the legislature, and particularly in the Senate, I, I had the honor of working with with Joe Hack, who, who, who really sort of brought a focus on this. And I didn't realize, and this is embarrassing for me to say, uh, as, as an almost lifetime Southern Nevadan uh, who's been involved in the legislative process uh, since 91, I, I didn't realize how broken it was. And, and he had some legislation that was very, you know, sort of simple about how do we, how do we have an alternative to the police uh, arresting somebody or, or taking somebody into custody on the street who's obviously mentally uh, ill and has and needs and needs help and needs some intervention. The only option they had was to take them to the emergency rooms. That's still happening. That's still happening today. So as I look, you know, I just turned 60 this year, and as I look at the opportunities I have in the professional world, uh, I decided a couple of years ago that I was going to be very selective about the project I, projects I worked on. I obviously need to make a, a, a living for my family, but, but I really want to be involved in projects that are going to make a difference and leave a better community for my grandkids and my kids. And this is absolutely one of those. Pro- I can't think. I've never been involved with a better project. And what happened at the medical school is a miracle. Miracle, and that those donors came forward and gave a free medical school to Southern Nevada and to the community because that was Kirk Krikorian's dream. Kirk Krikorian uh, was a brilliant man, and and he he said he promised his employees at the MGM that he would fix the medical system, and he's following through on that. So our, our, our group cares a lot about what that looks like and that that's highly successful, and everything we touch, we want to be excellent and to bring this community together in a way that has never been done before. And we've, we're getting cooperation that I've never seen before from the state, from the county, from the city of Las Vegas. And it's all this development corporation idea. And we make no money on it. I mean, I've had people ask me, well, how do you guys make money? We don't make money. The only thing we got out of the university, the medical school at UNLV was a bill for $150 million. So we're, we're, this is not a money-making process. This is about pure philanthropy in its purest form. But the new type of philanthropy where the, the people that are giving the money, the individuals and the uh, uh, trusts that are giving the money are going to stay involved and make sure these are success. And that is really good news for everybody in Southern Nevada. We are talking about redevelopment in Las Vegas. Some are thinking of it as as phase three, informally. 
Phase one was maybe former Mayor Oscar Goodman improving East Fremont roads and sidewalks. Phase two, when Tony Shea moved his apples downtown and invested $350 million in his downtown project. Phase three is both in the urban core and reaching out with Weena Jong and her Midtown project in the Arts District and this mental health campus near CSN we're talking about. And there are others who are developing more strategies for redeveloping urban areas, especially downtown Las Vegas. The architectural firm Gensler has a lot of interest in the area. Brett Robillard is a principal, and Paul Lee is an architect and associate with Gensler. Brett and Paul, welcome to the program. Hi there. Good morning. Hey, Joe. Thanks for having us. It's great to have you. So, Brett, I'm going to start with you. Downtown has seen redevelopment over more than a decade now. For some parts of it, like the far eastern edges of Fremont, those, are t- those aren't really taking off. And people in the suburbs and newer residents, you'll still hear them talk about how they fear downtown. Why do you see it as an area that's ripe for redevelopment? Um, well, it's a good question. I, I, I wanted to first start and thank Wayna. I worked with her on the English Hotel, and uh, what tenacity. You know, we need more people like her to, to be investing in, in the downtown. So, um, you know, for me, I, I'm from the East Coast, and so I consider Vegas to be, you know, it's still a young city in many ways. And so downtown, you know, it, it has extremely walkable blocks. Um, but over the, you know, last 10 years, it's really started to pick up. I actually lived downtown for, for a couple of years. Um, I think that, you know, it's a, it's a great investment because it's a way to create some authenticity and to celebrate Las Vegas for something that is, you know, perhaps a little different or quite a lot different uh, than what we know the strip to be. I think, you know, it, it's got all the right bones, as we say, um, but what it does need, and I, I believe it will uh, accelerate, is, uh, is uh, more density in residential housing like yeah. Wayne's project, for example. You also have, you have something called the What If Initiative. What is that? Um, well, <laughs> at Gensler, we, we have uh, obviously the projects that we work with with clients, uh, but also over the last couple of years locally, we've created this program internally where we say, what if? And uh, it's really us getting together as an office and looking at um, problems that we see that we feel that we could provide um, some, you know, uh, leadership on and bring that to the community ideally as almost a you know a, a case study as to you know help create some solutions to problems that have plagued Las Vegas and other cities as well um, in this particular case our current focus is on uh, what we're calling big box which is some of the blighted um, strip malls around town and you see them really everywhere and mm-hmm. so we're coming up with innovative solutions to try and figure out how to um, adaptive adaptively reuse those particular assets. Is that uh, what the, you also have something called the innovation challenge. Is that, is that part of the what if initiative or is that separate? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. We created what if as sort of a local homegrown uh, thing within our local office. The innovation challenge is a firm wide challenge and Gensler's a big firm. We have 6,500 people, 53 offices around the world um, and this is a program that the firm is pushing forward. Uh, of course, it has a much broader reach, but each region and each office is coming up with innovative ideas uh, across the board to deal with issues of sustainability or anything else that we feel as architects and designers we can, we can bring forward to help uh, you know, communities. 
And Paul Lee, I want to talk a little bit about the challenges of redevelopment in a, in a, a, an older developed area. You know, early on when businesses were starting on East Fremont, I was I was writing about it quite a bit, and they had major problems with infrastructure, especially plumbing and water mains and other issues like that. And other developers were saying at the time, you know, it's just easier and cheaper to start on somewhere fresh, go further out in the valley and start there where you don't have to deal with all these issues. Talk about the, some of the challenges with redeveloping an already developed urban area. Yeah, sure, Joe. I can, I'll can. i speak at it from two different angles. Sure. Of course, we've got the challenges of building an existing infrastructure in the existing fabric where you've got things, challenges like lack of infrastructure, crime, lack of safety, things that you have to deal with. Um, but on the flip side, the beauty of downtown as a developer is that you're really putting your product into a cultural milieu, so to speak, that has real value. So I think downtown, as it's perceived, has this real cultural effervescence and something that people want. So if you balance that out at the end of the day, I think in the long term, and this is something that we and I think has latched on to, you know, yes, there are challenges, but you know, the value that you derive from being in a dense area with real pedestrian traffic and real recognizability is huge. You know, right now on, say, the East Fremont area, it's the, the redevelopment is predicated on bars and restaurants. How, I guess the ideas that are sort of percolating at Gensler, how are the ideas for redevelopment uh, different than what you currently see on Lower East Fremont, you know, it, which has been described in many ways as kind of like the Bourbon Street of Las Vegas. Well, I'll, I yeah, can take well, that one. Yeah, whoever um, wants that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, sure. I um, well, yeah, East Fremont, and and in fact, a lot of the arts district in downtown has definitely seen a huge push towards you know entertainment in terms of bars and restaurants, and that's great. Um, I think. You know, within Gensler, what we look at is the sort of uh, microcosm of what makes a neighborhood and a community successful. And that's why I mentioned housing. I think what we need is more density of, it, of people living down there. It does start to trigger the need and the actual business opportunity for other kinds of things, like a grocery store, dry cleaning, all the stuff that goes along with ordinary life. And uh, the closer we can get to a, a 24-hour community, meaning people are living there, they're working there, they're you know, going out to eat there, that is going to be what ultimately sustains and helps to grow uh, a much more um, vibrant downtown. On East Fremont, I think what's happening is you know, it's, it's kind of coming up against Maryland Parkway, and there's more blighted areas there and a lot more vacancy. And I think it will change, but I don't see it changing as rapidly as, say, the Arts District. Yeah. yeah Wiener Jong, I, I guess this reminded me of a question I neglected to ask you, and that is when you're creating these 3,000 units, this $1.6 billion project, is this going to be rife with sports bars and uh, bars with tabletop slots? I mean, is that what you're envisioning as a way to make the these additional profits that you talked about to help uh, subsidize some of the expenses? First, well, you guys talking about uh, thinking about my three million dollar inf- infrastructure budget for the next two towers. A lot of money improved the infrastructure structure infrastructures. Yeah. So uh, I want to make sure 
you know, when I when I covered this part of uh, area called Midtown, where like three uh, city blocks from downtown uh, from the city hall, and then we are actually part of our district. So we got hundreds of restaurants, brewery people work around all there already. Midtown is create for working class, whether you're doctor, you nurse, or you work for the strip, will be no gaming, not even sports bar, no nightclub. The, the largest restaurant inside Midtown will be the Pepper Club. Pepper Club will be closed 10.30. So intend to create people, they can enjoy a uh, true urban life. You get up 6 a.m., there's a, uh, there is coffee and cold pressed juices there. By 10.30, if you need to go sleep, you need to go sleep. Safe. All right. Well, that's all the time we have. Really, everybody who joined me today, thank you so much. That includes Brett Robillard and Paul Lee of Gensler Architectural and Design Firm, former state senator Warren Hardy, who is working on the vision for a new mental health campus in Las Vegas, and Weena Jong, CEO of Z Life, who says she'll break ground on the first phase of her Midtown project later this year. 3,000 housing units, $1.6 billion in the, in the coming years.